Well, today's sermon is simply titled Preparing for the Lord's Arrival Part 2 um, as we're going to finish where we began last week. Now, you should be very familiar with the opening words of Mark's Gospel, uh, but as a firm foundation for this morning, uh, please turn with me to chapter 1 and we're going to read again through these opening verses. So Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptised you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. Last week, we saw firstly uh, that the Lord's arrival was prepared by this hope declared. The hope declared in the prophetic writings of of the Old Testament, words written in the past, in history. And we understood that Jesus coming into this world was not plan B. It was not a contingency plan for salvation when everything else God had planned uh, fell through. It had always been the plan for salvation to be through Christ alone. So much so that not only is the Lord's arrival uh, predicted, But the messenger who would prepare the way for the Lord's arrival is also predicted. And so secondly, we looked at this messenger, the herald deployed. We saw his nature. John the Baptist was a man devoted to God, absolutely. And we saw his notice. It was a message of repentance that the people needed to turn from their sin and to trust in God and receive forgiveness of their sins and uh, being readied in their hearts for the one who made that forgiveness possible. Of course, submitting to baptism uh, was a sign of humility before God, acknowledging that they were sinners, acknowledging that they actually did need a saviour. Well, that brings us to our third point, which we will focus on today, and that is the Holy Spirit destined. See, in preparing for the Lord's arrival, people needed to be prepared for the arrival of the Holy Spirit, the one whom the Lord would baptise his people with. Now, it would have been easier, in a sense, Uh, for me to have just summarised what John the Baptist meant and then included that at the end of last week's message and we could have then just moved on today. 
But I wanted to spend more time on this because of the nature of the subject, um, because of the wide array of views that are out there today, because of the contentions that arise, because there are a wide array of views that are out there. And I wanted us to give us ample time so we can carefully and thoughtfully work through the scriptures uh, and discern the meaning of John's incredible prophecy. Because it's not our experiences, it's not our traditions that are the ultimate authority, it is scripture. And so when we want to understand what God is doing, we look to his word and we judge all other things by that. So we're going to look at this topic today under three headings and if you've got your news sheets, they're on the back, Um, but they're not that complicated. Firstly, the Holy Spirit destined is a greater work. Secondly, it is a newer work. And thirdly, the Holy Spirit destined is a transitional work. Now once again, uh, if there are things that I talk about today that, that you might disagree with, I'm sure there's lots of people here from all different backgrounds. Uh, Well, if there's things that we talk about that you're unsure of, then I encourage you, please come and speak to me after the service and together with an open Bible, we'll work through this more and more um, because we always want to submit to the word, do we not? Well, the Holy Spirit destined is a greater work, number one. John humbly acknowledges the mighty nature of the one to come, uh, which is exemplified by the greater work of the baptism with the Holy Spirit. This is how he sets this all up. John knew himself and he knew what he was on about. He was simply the servant of the Lord. Uh, It was an awesome privilege, Uh, but this ministry was given to him by the Lord. It was not his own creation. He could not take pride in it from his own doing. He was there because the Lord had placed him there. And he had no false assumptions about his own grandeur, as can be seen in his comments in verse 7. See, in ancient culture, it was commonplace for servants of a master to remove his shoes. And what John's saying here is that I'm too lowly for that in comparison to the grandeur of the one to come. Here is a man with a proper respect for the holiness of the Lord. He truly knew his place before God. Well, then in verse 8, John provides a specific example of the mightiness of the one to come. He says, I have baptised you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit, One is greater than the other because one is an outward symbol, but the other is an inward reality. To baptise literally means to put under or to go under water. And it pictures something being totally immersed, submerged in water. And so John called the Jews to go under water the water as a symbol of their repentance from their sin. It was a humbling action to submit themselves to this process. But that was an outward sign. It was only a symbol. A greater work 
was coming. The coming Lord would immerse his people with the Holy Spirit. Now, two things we need to understand here. Number one, to be baptized with the Holy Spirit is to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Um, Some cults will refer to the Spirit as merely a power or a force or a substance of God. Uh, But the Holy Spirit is a person. He is referred to in in the New Testament in particular with personal pronouns. He, uh, the Holy Spirit, Um, the third person of the Trinity, not merely some force or substance. So uh, we need to understand that, that when we're immersed in the Spirit, it's the third person of the Trinity that is at work. But secondly, we need to understand that it's, it's actually incorrect to refer to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's incorrect terminology. We don't find that in the Scriptures. Because it is Christ who baptises with the Holy Spirit. It is the baptism of Christ with the Holy Spirit. And more fully, the Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son. Listen to this promise uh, of Jesus in the upper room uh, in John chapter 15, verse 26. He says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So it's not baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, For God the Holy Spirit would be sent by God the Father and God the Son. So number one, the Holy Spirit destined is a greater work. Number two, the Holy Spirit destined is a newer work. The Holy Spirit, we need to understand, uh, was actively at work throughout the whole Old Testament period. But with the arrival of the Lord Jesus, uh, a new phase of the Spirit's work would be introduced. So how was the Spirit at work in the Old Testament? Well, firstly, he was involved in creating and sustaining physical life, all things. Uh, Genesis 1 verse 2, we read that in the beginning uh, that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. That sustaining nature of the Spirit is also seen in Job chapter 34 uh, where we read in verses 14 to 15, if he, that is God, if he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his Spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. So the Spirit is involved in creation, but also in sustaining that physical life. If the Spirit is removed, life would end. But secondly, the Spirit is involved in creating and sustaining spiritual life within a person. Uh, And what I mean by that is regeneration, uh, the new birth. Um, It is the Spirit who gives new birth to sinners Uh, that they might respond to God with repentance and faith. Romans 3 verses 10 to 11 says, uh, None is righteous. No, not one. How many? None. Uh, No one understands. No one seeks for God. 
There are no seekers of God in this world. It is God who seeks. It is only once the Spirit touches a person's heart that they can, in turn, seek God. Now, while the faith of the Old Testament believers was in the uh, work of, sorry, in the work that God would do uh, in the lead up to the cross, as opposed to uh, us on this, the New Testament side of the cross, in what God has done there, at every point in history, the only way that a sinner could respond to the grace of God was for the Spirit to give them new life. Now, while the language is slightly different uh, between the Old Testament and the New and regarding the process of regeneration, the message is, is the same. Uh, look at these words from Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. It is God who works to create spiritual life in the hearts of a dead sinner. He always has. And without this work, no one would respond to him. So the Spirit has been doing that in the Old Testament as he does in the New. But there's one specific area of difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that uh, is the third point of empowering spiritual life. Now, in the Old Testament, the Spirit uh, empowered certain individuals, and we can read this, uh, uh, for instance, in the book of Judges. Multiple times we read about the Spirit of God coming upon one of the judges and empowering them for the service that God uh, called them to do, in that case, delivering their people. Um, Not everyone had the Spirit empowering them. Uh, We see that in the life of King Saul, indeed when the Spirit was taken away from Saul. Uh, We see that in the life of King David, and then David himself in Psalm 51 prayed that the Lord would not take the Spirit from him. But we see that most particularly uh, in the life of Moses. Uh, There's an interesting account Uh, which is really crucial for our understanding of uh, the Spirit's work in Numbers chapter 11. So if you turn with me to Numbers chapter 11. We have here the account of the Israelites complaining um, uh, because they had it so good back in Egypt uh, where there was so much plentiful food available for them. Um, And then Moses gets to the point of utter frustration. God, why have you lumped me with these people? Why uh, am I the only one that has to to lead them here? Um, And then it picks up in verse 16. The Lord said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you. So God's setting up uh, a process where he's um, 
sharing the load. Um, the, the leadership would not just fall entirely upon Moses, he would be, still be the singular leader, but the work would be divvied up among other leaders. So verse 17, And I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. So the Spirit of God was resting upon Moses and empowering him for leadership. Uh, but he's feeling overwhelmed by all of the, uh, the entire nation, um, uh, despising what God has done. And so God allows him this, this gracious moment of bringing in other leaders. And he says, I'm going to put my spirit uh, on these people as well. Um, and then we see in verse 25, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. So there was an immediate sign that the spirit was at work upon them. But here's the interesting thing. Verse 26, Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad. And the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent. And so they prophesied in the camp. There's two stragglers who didn't bother going out to the place uh, where they were called to. Uh, They'd written their their names down, but they didn't rock up. Um, And so what happens? Verse 27, a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. So Moses is saying to Joshua, Don't be jealous. How amazing would that be if the spirit rested upon all God's people. And so Moses looks forward to a time when this would happen. Now we see then developments throughout uh, the Old Testament, uh, particularly in Isaiah and Ezekiel, but the major development comes in the book of Joel, in the prophecy of Joel and chapter 2, verse 28. And what does Joel prophesy? And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And so Moses' prayer becomes Joel's prophecy. But even more than that, Joel's prophecy in the New Testament, becomes Jesus' promise. We read in John chapter 7, verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so where do we see this fulfilled? At Pentecost, do we not? 
from Pentecost that all believers are then indwelt and empowered and unified together uh, through the Holy Spirit. Moses' hope of long ago is now fulfilled. So, number two, the Holy Spirit destined is a newer work. And then number three, the Holy Spirit destined is a transitional work. This newer work of God, we must understand, was also a transitional work. It played out in salvation history in a certain way. For the baptism with the Holy Spirit was a two-stage process for the early church, but it is not any longer. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, in the book of Acts, there are accounts of people who are believers. They've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. They've repented and declared their faith in Jesus Christ. And then at some stage after, there is a delay between that and when they're given the gift of the Holy Spirit, baptised with the Spirit. Now, this has led many people to think that uh, this should be the normative pattern uh, or normal experience for all Christians for all time, uh, that we uh, can become Christians, but then we should be seeking a second blessing, a second baptism of the Holy Spirit, something that will then push us even further into blessing. The question is, is that right? Uh, Is that a good way of reading what we see in Acts? Uh, Is that what Acts actually teaches? Is that what John the Baptist actually meant when he spoke those words. Well, to understand that, turn with me to the book of Acts. And Acts chapter 1. And keep Acts open because we're going to flick through to see this incredible progression, which I'm not sure you may have seen before. It might be the first time you've understood this. So Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Uh, Jesus uh, points the disciples back to what John the Baptist said about him. Acts 1 verses 4 and 5. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So the Spirit's work there uh, would empower them for this witness to the uh, from Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And Acts, the book of Acts actually follows that progression moving through those regions and seeing how the gospel spreads. And recognising this progression is uh, one of the keys for understanding what it means to be baptised with the Holy Spirit. You see, there's not actually one Pentecost in Acts. There's actually four events uh, that are Pentecostal events. The first one we see is in Acts chapter 2, the one that we all know of. Acts chapter 2, let me read verses 1 to 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, 
and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So it's here for the first time that the 120 believers that are gathered um, uh, after the, uh, the ascension of Christ, they were first indwelt, empowered and unified by the Holy Spirit. And it's an incredible sign. There's no uh, misunderstanding there. Of course, there is misunderstanding. The people think they're all drunk. Uh, but Peter gets up and explains, no, this is what the prophet Joel spoke of. And you can see that clearly. And uh, after that, he preaches an incredible sermon and commanding people to be repentant, baptised in water that they might receive the gift of the Spirit as well. And then 3,000 are added by God that day. But there were three more Pentecost events. And each time it happens to one of the people groups that are mentioned in Acts chapter 1. So in Acts chapter 2, we have the Jews in Jerusalem. But then we move to Acts chapter 8, where we see what happens to the Samaritans. Philip uh, had uh, been heading out there preaching uh, the gospel uh, to the Samaritans, and they had responded um, in repentance and faith. And uh, this was uh, an incredible thing because Samaria, uh, located in what was uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, the Samaritans were hated uh, by the Jews. There was a great animosity between them. It all uh, stemmed uh, back when the northern kingdom was defeated by the Assyrians and then uh, there was uh, a repopulation. The Assyrians brought in peoples of all different countries and nations and there was intermarriages, interbreeding. So in the Jews' mind, the Samaritans were really just half-breeds. Uh, but here, uh, the persecution has spread uh, the gospel out further and uh, Philip's been preaching uh, but look what happens then in verse 14. Remember, they've already responded. They've been baptised in water. And then verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent uh, to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they only had been baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. And they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So there is a gap between when the Samaritans uh, become believers and when they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we've got to ask the question, why? And that stems to the nature of that relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans. Uh, it was all for the apostles and the early church to recognise the Samaritans, these half-breeds, God's actually calling all people into his kingdom, all types of people, not just the Jews, but anyone who is going to respond to this gospel message in repentance and faith, God will bring into his kingdom. So that's the Samaritans. Then we move to Acts chapter 10. 
And we find the account of Cornelius, the noble centurion. Now he represents another people group and they're known as the God-fearers. They're Gentiles, but they're converts to Judaism in every respect except circumcision. Now, Cornelius receives a vision from God uh, to invite the Apostle Peter to come and speak to him. At the same time, uh, the Apostle Peter is receiving his own vision uh, from God in regards to uh, the clean and unclean foods, and obviously it's preparing him for what's about to happen. And then we read uh, that Peter comes and he preaches the gospel to them. And then what happens in verse 44? While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Once again, there is a delay but once between them being born again and being baptised with the Spirit. But it is all for the apostles to understand that they're just like us. God has brought them into the kingdom as well. And then finally, we see something in Acts chapter 19. We've seen the Spirit come upon the Jews. We've seen the Spirit come upon the Samaritans. The Spirit come upon the God-fearers. And then finally, to the Gentiles, the distinct Gentiles. Acts 19, we read from verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So there we have the four people groups mentioned in Acts 1, all experiencing their own Pentecost event, all for the purpose of understanding uh, that uh, God was bringing a people from all nations to himself. Well, the question then is, are these experiences in Acts the normative experience for all Christians today? Once we become a Christian, are we to uh, seek out a baptism of the Holy Spirit, as some suggest? Well, if this is the case, then we've actually devalued the significance of Pentecost If it is true that you can have Christians who have uh, not been baptised with the Spirit and Christians who have been baptised with the Spirit, then Pentecost has not actually happened. Because the significance of Pentecost is that God pours His Spirit out on all people. 
There was a two-stage process in the early church between being born of the Spirit and being baptised with the Spirit. But as we've seen, it's to show the church and the apostles uh, that all who repented and believed in Christ were one in Christ, that God was bringing them into his kingdom. But this was a transitional work, and I'll show you why. It was actually during his three-year ministry in Ephesus uh, that we read about in Acts 19 that the Apostle Paul wrote his first letter to the Corinthians. Now, he just witnessed the Spirit falling upon the Gentiles. And what does he say to the Corinthians? Well, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 to 13, he says this, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptised into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So while we can still distinguish between the different aspects of the spirit's work, unlike the early church, There is no time distinction. There's no time delay. Those who are born of the Spirit are baptised with the Spirit. So we don't need to look for some fuller, uh, further special blessing or second baptism because the definition of a Christian, according to 1 Corinthians 12 here, is that it is a person who has been baptised with the Spirit, indwelt and empowered for service and united to Christ's body. There's no tiered system in Christianity. There are no haves and have-nots. What then do we make of the great number of people who claim to have experienced a post-conversion baptism of the Spirit? Well, just quickly, there's three ways to assess this. Number one is that it's actually a first experience of the Spirit. Jesus declared in Matthew 7 that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. And we need to recognise that there are many people who sit within uh, pews of churches, uh, particularly liberal churches who've never heard the gospel before, uh, and they're not actually Christians. They've never experienced the Spirit before because they're not actually saved. And so when someone comes along preaching the gospel and opening up the word and uh, getting them into biblical truth and uh, then the spirit regenerates their hearts and uh, they experience his presence for the first time it's not a second baptism it's an initial baptism Uh, and what a wonderful thing that is (coughs) so that's number one number two is that they're actually false experiences of the Spirit. See, much of what passes today as the work of the Spirit is actually the work of an unholy Spirit. If you uh, click on the web, you can see um, images of footage of Christians supposedly baptised in the Spirit and the way they're carrying on and acting uh, in ecstatic, uncontrolled manners. It reflects much more of Eastern pagan mystical experiences. So how can we tell if the Spirit is genuinely at work? Well, what is the fruit of the Spirit? What should we expect is the evidence of being filled with the Spirit? 
Well, Paul says that very clearly in Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Paul also tells us in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33, that God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Yet the fruit uh, that we are told to look for by many proponents of a second baptism hardly reflects any of this. The Spirit's work doesn't lead to uncontrolled living, but a greater control and a greater wisdom in the Lord. And thirdly, we can understand them as filling experiences of the Spirit. Sometimes believers have experienced what might be uh, uh, considered a spiritual leap uh, in their faith, which has led to great blessing. Uh, Now, in this instance, it's really the terminology that's wrong, not the experience. Ephesians 5 verse 18, Paul writes, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Uh, That literally says... Be being kept filled. See, believers are filled with the Spirit. We are, but we are called and commanded to keep walking with the Spirit and keep submitting to the Spirit's leading. This is not some mystical experience, but it happens through feeding on the Spirit's Word as we let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly as we study the Scriptures. It leads us to repentance, it leads us to confession of sin, to a a deeper prayer life focused on the concerns of God, a willingness to use our our gifts to serve Christ for the benefit of the church, uh, to live humbly and hopefully for the kingdom of God and all of his priorities. Interestingly, when, when people are taught to ready themselves for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it says, is it not these things that they're called to do? Is it no surprise then that they experience growth in their relationship with God as a result? When John the Baptist preached of the one who would baptise with the Spirit, he was speaking of a greater work of God, a newer work of God and a transitional work of God. And that transition has been completed This was not the experience from Acts 19 onwards, as Paul was made very clear in 1 Corinthians 12. All believers are now baptised with the Spirit. Now the wonder of God is that he in his absolute holiness would enable a way to dwell among sinful people. Uh, In the Old Testament, uh, God dwelt among his people through his presence in the temple. He was with them by being in the midst of them in the temple. But this would ultimately uh, be fulfilled in a much more personal sense. God would ultimately make it possible to dwell within all his people, not merely with. And not merely his people among the Jews, but among the Gentiles as well. And this is the incredible reality that Paul speaks of in Ephesians 2. And I'm just going to finish with these words. 
Paul writes in Ephesians 2 from verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. Remember, he's writing to Jews and Gentiles here. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So praise be to God that he indwells his people through his Spirit, that he empowers them for service through his Spirit and unites them in Christ through his Spirit. This is the work that John the Baptist proclaimed and through Christ it has been fulfilled. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you that there is no tiered system in your kingdom. There are no haves and have-nots. But when you, by your spirit work, to bring regeneration to a person's heart, you fill each person with your spirit, baptising them and enabling them to have your indwelling presence, your empowerment for service, that we might be great witnesses for you. And that we are, through the presence of the Spirit, united together in Christ's body. Father, we thank you that this is the work uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, who through his death and his resurrection and his ascension uh, was able to send the Holy Spirit to us. We thank you that this is not some mystical power or force, but the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity and we thank you that you are personally within your people. We thank you for this gracious work of yourself. Amen.